Today I want to speak to you about the superiority of Christ. And in Luke's gospel, in Luke 24, 44, Jesus himself tells his disciples about his superiority. Let me just read to you 44 to 45. This is post-resurrection. This is our Lord coming to his disciples to reveal to them what the scriptures say about himself. Verse 44 reads, Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus tells his disciples that all of the Scriptures point to him. He is the focus of all Scriptures. The entire Bible is about Jesus. It is all Christ-centered. He's pointing out his superiority. He is the subject of the book that God has given to us. The Old Testament points to Jesus' incarnation that would come. The Gospels reveal His incarnate work of redemption. The book of Acts proclaims the good news of His salvation. The New Testament epistles teach us that Christ manifests His glory through our sanctification. The book of Revelation presents Jesus as the eternal King of heaven. And all of those things can be summed up in the passage we're going to read this morning from Colossians. Colossians 1.15 When we come to this text and we begin to look at it, we will see all the things that the Bible talks about throughout its entirety summarized in actually the passage of, of Colossians 1.9-18. It's all there. God has condensed it for us, for our edification and for our protection as you'll see, that's Paul's purpose in granting this to us here. Let me begin reading in Colossians 1.9 and read down to, to 18. We will only be looking at verse 15 this morning, and it will only be 15a that we will look at this morning. The Apostle Paul had expressed his love for this church in the previous eight verses, and then he's talking about how he is rejoicing over their salvation, the evidence of their salvation, and he writes this in verse 9, and so... From the day we heard about their salvation, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be controlled or filled with the knowledge of God's will, His will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This text declares the superiority of Christ that all of the scriptures testify to from Genesis to Revelation. This passage removes any doubts about who Jesus Christ truly is, not was. You'll notice the subtlety there of the Apostle Paul in verse 15. He'll mention that Jesus is, not was, the image of the invisible God. This passage is essential to Christianity. Therefore, I want to go through it slowly. But before we we dig into verse 15... I want to bring you up to speed contextually here a little bit. The Apostle Paul is writing to the church at Colossae. And he's warning them about false teachers. And he's doing so as a pastor. He's he's not focusing on their false teaching. He's focusing on the truth. He's warning them through edification. That's how he warns them. He focuses on the truth so they will see that the false is there and it's obvious to them in light of God's true revelation. This is a great pattern for us as we try to help others see the truth. We are to focus on truth rather than on error. The truth will set people free, so we focus upon that. But as the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Colossae, warning them about the false teachers that were coming into their midst and actually serving within the church, he he wants to protect them and he wants to start off on the right foot by focusing on the true teacher, the true master, the one who has all the fullness of God in bodily form. So he focuses on Christ. He focuses on Christ because that's where the false teachers went astray. The errors being taught in Colossae by the false teachers were focused on on causing Christians to doubt who Jesus Christ is. Not was, but who he is. The false teachers wanted to cast doubts on who Christ is and what he accomplished in his life, his atonement, his resurrection, his perfections. Because the false teachers claim that they had something to add to the work that Christ didn't complete. It was Jesus plus their revelations, their insights, their understanding, their wisdom, their enlightenment. The false teachers claimed that Just believing in Christ alone was inadequate to rescue sinners, to transform us. The false teachers claimed that we needed fresh revelations. We needed more requirements that Christ didn't give to us. We needed regulations so that we could perfect the work of Christ that that He started in our lives. Jesus could get us on the right track, but we needed fresher instructions that the false teachers said they had the ability to give to us because they were super enlightened. They had gnosis. This was the seed form of Gnosticism here. It's starting to get into the church, and the Apostle Paul wants to protect the body of Christ from that error. So he focuses on Christ. The false teachers claimed that they possessed a greater knowledge than Paul They understood, they said, the mysteries of God because they had been super enlightened. They'd had a a divine light shine upon them and give them insights that the Apostle Paul didn't have or that Jesus didn't reveal. They said that their experience was better than Paul's or Christ's because their experience was newer. It was fresher. 
They had a fresher revelation of God and who He is and what He wants. Therefore, they had greater authority because of their revelations. That's what they would tell to the Colossians. This is a danger we still face today. It's a danger that the church has faced from, obviously, the beginning here. It was a danger that John Calvin faced. Here's what Calvin said about these type of teachers, this type of teaching, false teaching that came into the church. He said, quote, By these means, referring to revelatory prophecy, the Lord meant to beautify the first beginnings of the gospel when He raised up men and women to foretell things to come. Prophecies had now almost ceased, referring to the end of the Old Testament economy. 400 years before the coming of Christ, prophecies had now almost ceased many years among the Jews to the end they might be more attentive and desirous to hear the new voice of the gospel. Revelatory prophecy should last but for a short time, lest the faithful should always wait for some farther thing and lest the curious wits might have occasion given to seek or invent some new thing every now and then. For we know that when that ability and skill was taken away, that of revelatory prophecy, there was notwithstanding many brain-sick fellows who did boast that they were prophets. Calvin says the men at Colossae and the men in his day and the men in our day who seek a revelation outside of the gospel, outside of the scriptures, are brain-sick fellows. They're sick in the head. But we need to be aware that we still have guys like that here, even today, trying to come into the church through crafty means, greater knowledge, experiential knowledge that they say they have that, that Paul didn't have or that Calvin didn't have or that we don't have. We need to beware of these men. And and John Calvin was, in in essence, saying, regarding Revelation, if it's new, it's untrue. If it's new, it's untrue. And let me just say this to you as we enter into studying this. If, If the Word of God is not sufficient, if a man stands in a pulpit and says he has something greater to give you than the words of Scripture, that man is trying to sell something. He's trying to sell himself. He's a false teacher. The false teachers denied the truth because they wanted to elevate themselves. False teachers denied Jesus' deity in order to assert that they had a greater authority and they could rule the church and rule the people and gain, basically, ascendance. We see how the Apostle Paul deals with these kinds of men in Colossians 1.15. We'll look at that in particular a little bit later. He deals with them, again, not by focusing on their error, but focusing on the reality of who Christ is and His authority, His supremacy. But before I I go into that, I think as as thinking people, we should look at the false teachers throughout the New Testament, throughout the church era, and, and wonder, what is motivating these guys? I mean... What are these guys thinking? Why are, they, why are they doing these things? Why are they constantly a, a thorn in the flesh of Paul throughout his epistles? And I think the Scripture tells us why they do what they do. I think there is an unholy trinity that defines the false teacher's motives. The unholy trinity is pride, greed, and Satan. That's what drives false teaching and false teachers. 
And that same unholy trinity identifies all the false teachers in our day as well because the Apostle Paul said they're coming. And let me give you some, some earmarks, some identification marks here that will show you who they are. So before we go into Colossians 1.15, let me identify to you what false teaching will look like in 2 Timothy 3. In 2 Timothy 3, we see the marks of a false teacher beginning in verse 1. And this is, this is Paul writing to Timothy, but he's talking about the time in which we live right now. And he's not talking about the culture, and he's not talking about the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormons or Islam. He's talking about evangelicalism. He says, understand this, that in the last days, in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be what? Lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now notice verse 5. Where are these guys at? They're in the church. Having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. And then he makes a comparison. Just as Janus and Jambres, these were the deceivers in, in Moses' day, as they opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. That is, the once for all delivered to the saints truth that Jude 3 talks about. They oppose the written revelation of the faith in Scripture. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. These men will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as that of those two men. Now look at 1 Timothy. We see him outline it a little bit more here for us to help us identify what false teachers are motivated by and what they do and what they look like in, in 1 Timothy Four, one. This is our warning again. Now the spirit, the spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, the, the truth, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars. That's the false teachers whose consciences are seared. Now these seared consciences and these these insincere liars are demon-inspired false teachers. And they want to distract and detract from the truth. That's how they get into the church. They don't come with a pitchfork and a red suit. They come as angels of light. They come into the church as teachers and preachers and deacons. And they begin to cast doubt on who Jesus is because of their own experiences and their own visions, their own ideologies. They begin to cast doubts on how we should respond to Jesus as our Lord and Master. They begin to teach that Jesus is a Savior, but He doesn't have to change you. You don't have to submit to His authority, His direction, or live holy. You get Christ and you've got your ticket punched and you're going to heaven and you can live however you want. They deny the lordship of our master. Jude warns about such men. Read it sometime. 
Jude warns that some will come in and deny the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. The truth that's been delivered to the saints. And, and that's what's happening in Colossae. These men came in like angels of light. They came in to subtly usurp the authority of Christ by distracting Christians, by distracting the church with their own agendas, with their own activities, with their own ideologies. As Christians, we need to remember something. If we're going to be protected from that, we need to know who sets the agenda for the church. Who sets the agenda for us personally? Who sets the agenda for us corporately as a church body? Who sets the agenda for us culturally as Christians? And that would be our Lord and our Master. Not a false teacher, not a man's opinions, not the political agenda of some, but the Lord of all. Our Lord sets the agenda for, number one, let me just show you some things real quick. He sets the agenda for our lives personally. Colossians 3. Colossians 3.17. He is the one who is the master over our personal life. He sets the agenda. Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do, this, is, this means everything you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Well, what's he mean by that? You mean, okay, in everything I do, give, give him, give him uh, honor. Okay, what do you, what's it look like practically? Well, he tells us in the next few verses. He gives you an example of everything. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. In other words, do what God says, wives. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do what God says, husbands. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Slaves, I mean, you know, if you work for someone, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not just outwardly, not with just eye service, as people pleasers, but do it, he says, with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. The Lord is setting the agenda for everything here. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Jesus sets the agenda for our personal life here. He also sets the agenda for the church. Colossians 3.1 If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. And then he's talking about the corporate body here. He says, put, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these things, you notice, to once walked. You to once walked when you were living in them or alive in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of after the image of its creator. Here, talking about in the church, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, 
barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Then he says this, and we know it's the, the agenda for the church here because of what he says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put this on, put on compassionate hearts, put on kindness, put on humility, put on meekness and patience, bearing with one another. Put on love, he says. That's what binds it all together. The Lord Jesus sets the agenda for us personally and corporately. So it's so important for us to know who He is and not just identify Him as Lord, but but live in light of His Lordship. And not just personally and corporately, but also culturally. Culturally. Colossians 4 instructs us here. And this is just the divine wisdom of the Holy Spirit teaching us something in the way in which he wrote the scriptures. He starts off in 115 by declaring who the Lord is, then showing us how we live in light of his superiority. In Colossians 4, 2, we see how to live culturally as Christians. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Then he says this, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Why? so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. He's talking about how we live in the culture. If we understand who we are in Christ, and we can declare the mystery of Christ, we need to be going into the world and have our speech seasoned with salt. Be gracious and compassionate. And we need to stand out. He didn't say, go into the culture and blend in. He said, go into the culture and season it. He didn't say, become like it. We love the people in the culture. We live in the culture. We are to be people that are set apart from the culture because of who we serve, because of who our master is. As Christians, our Lord sets the agenda for us because of who He is. He is Master, Lord, King, Savior. That's what Paul's teaching us, and that's what Paul will argue in Colossians 1.15. Now go back there with me. In Colossians 1.15, Paul reveals that Christ sets the agenda for His church because of two things. We'll only look at one. (laughs) Jesus sets the agenda because of, number one, His eternal testimony. And number two, because of His superior authority. In verse 15, the superiority of Christ is revealed in, number one, His eternal testimony, and number two, His superior authority. Paul is starting this church off on the right foot. He is saying, there are those who come into your midst and testify that they have a great experience. I'll tell you about one who has a greater testimony. Colossians 1.15 follows the great truth of our salvation, how God Himself, God the Father, delivered us from the domain of darkness and He transferred us from this domain into another domain, into the kingdom of His beloved Son, implying 
Jesus as king over us. He redeemed us through the, the Savior's own blood. We have the forgiveness of our sins. And then he says this, just so you understand who it is that saved you, let me explain this king to you. He, Jesus, is the antecedent to verse 15a. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Yours may say of all creation, but it means over all creation. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. What Paul's doing here is he's revealing, number one, the superiority of Christ's eternal testimony because his testimony testifies and reveals that he is deity, that he is God. Look what it says. He is, not was, not will be, not has been, but he is the image of the invisible God. That one word makes an eternity of difference. He is. I mean, he's still king. He's still reigning. He is the theanthropos. He is the forever God-man. When we look upon our king in the future, we will see the incarnate Son of God bearing the wounds of our sin. And we will be without wounds. We will be healed completely. And He will bear the marks for us eternally. Reminding us of His sacrifice and His Lordship over our life and why we should bow before Him in humble and reverent homage. 13 and 14 tell us that God's beloved Son is our redeeming King. In verse 15, He's elaborating on that. He's saying this Jesus is and always will be the King of glory who came to rescue you personally. How do you respond to that practically? I hope with joy. I hope with repentance. I hope with obedience. Those are the marks of a Christian. One who belongs to his kingdom. We have a gracious king, but he is a sovereign king. He is all-powerful, and He reigns forever. Jesus manifested God for us in the flesh. He gave us a glimpse of God's nature humanly. He presented that to us. And we will see His glory fully in eternity. Look with me at at the text in Revelation 5. Revelation 5 ties into Colossians 1.15, I believe, because this gives us a glimpse into the future of what we will see testifying that Colossians 1.15 is a true statement that Jesus is, is the image of the invisible God still today and in the future. Revelation 5 says, as John writes, he says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within it and on back, within and on back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who's worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And notice this. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Now, saints, listen. This is a glimpse of heaven. John's looking into heaven and he's seeing that there's no person here worthy to open this scroll. 
this scroll can only be opened by the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise. The people in heaven are all without sin. They're not unholy. But no one there is worthy except one. And he describes his status here. Verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has, past tense, has conquered. Why? So that he can open the scroll. Because of his victory, he is worthy. And that victory was won humanly. He won that in the flesh by becoming our substitute here on earth. Verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, he didn't just see the the lion, he saw the lamb. Now he's seeing the same person who's described as a lion and a lamb. As a lion that conquers and as a lamb that was slaughtered. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, implying this king still bears the marks of his victory. He is the image of the invisible God. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, he says, and he went and took, he being Jesus, went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Now listen, saints, it was forbidden in the Old Testament to worship anyone but God. It is forbidden in the New Testament to worship anyone but God. And in heaven, all of heaven bows before this Lamb, implying He is God each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense with which are the prayers of the saints offered to the Lamb. Verse 9 says, And they sang a new song. Worthy are you. He's talking to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Why is He worthy? For you were, you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Colossians 1, 13 and 14. We've been delivered into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. And in that kingdom, He reigns supreme. Verse 11 says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And John writes, And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. They worshipped Jesus. The image of the invisible God. This is the Jesus that Paul is writing about in Colossians 1.15. And his point is, 
Look at His eternal testimony. No one is superior to Him. There is no fresher reigning king than Him. No one can reign over the church with authority but Him. In verse 15a there in Colossians, it says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And the actual Greek word there is Jesus is the icon of the invisible God. We use that term icon a lot. We use it so much we don't think about it today, don't we? We know that an icon is a little picture on our desktop that represents a specific program on our computer. We realize that. It represents that. But there's more to this word icon in the Greek than just a representation. Icons in Paul's day were thought of as more than just a symbol. An icon would be another way of saying an idol. They thought an icon manifested the reality of what it represented. They believed that icons didn't just merely represent their their god or their their deity that they worshipped. It was the actual material form of their god made manifest for them. That's exactly the way Paul is using that term here. Paul, Paul is saying this. He is saying that Jesus is the exact representation and manifestation of God Himself. Submit to Him. Not to false teaching. Not to new revelations. Not to new messages outside of His revelation. Jesus is the image of God. He has a greater testimony. He is the image of God in human flesh that we were able to see and touch and handle. He was in the beginning with God because He was God. And he came to us, John 1.14 says, and tabernacled with us humanly. He took on flesh to show us God's glory and atone for our sins personally. When, when Paul writes Colossians 1.15, if his statement is anything but true, Paul is a blasphemer. He is an idolater. And he should have been put to death immediately. If if Jesus were not God, his statement would be idolatry. It would be blasphemy to say that Jesus is the exact representation and manifestation of God in a human form here on earth. That would be blasphemy if it wasn't true. But this was Jesus' own testimony out of his own lips. He said this in John 10. Turn there with me. John 10, 24. The Jews are looking for ways to trip him up to cause him to stumble so they can have him arrested and remove him from their midst. He is a thorn in their flesh, so to speak. Verse 24 says, So the Jews gathered around Jesus and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? And this is all just contrived and fake and and hypocrisy here. He says, If if you are the Messiah, Christ, tell us plainly. They're, They're trying to appeal to him as if they're sincere. And Jesus answers with just eternal wisdom. He says, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe, because you are not part of my flock. He says, look, I've told you, and the things that I do actually testify to this reality, but you don't believe because I haven't given you credible reasons. You don't believe because you're in rebellion. You love your sin more than submitting to God's revelation. And he says this in verse 27. Here's the difference between you 
and those who belong to me. And notice this, just the phraseology here implies that Jesus is Lord. My sheep, he possesses them, he owns them. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And that word know there is talking about intimate knowledge of them, intimate relationship with them. And the evidence that they actually belong to him is it says they follow me. They obey me. His sheep hear and obey. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. One unit. One mind. One thought. They had one purpose. They have one nature. That's what he's saying here. And the Jews uh, understood him perfectly. They, they understood exactly what he meant when he said, we are one unit, we are equal. They picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God or equal to God. That's exactly what he was doing. That's exactly what he was testifying to. That's what he was revealing to them. But they would not submit to him. This is the way unregenerate men respond to a sovereign king. Rather than submit, they would rather kill the king and remove him from their midst. That's what they sought to do. Paul's testimony in Colossians 1.15, Jesus' testimony in John 10 aren't the only testimonies in the New Testament about Jesus' deity, though. Hebrews 1, 1-3. The writer of Hebrews begins in verse 1 saying, Long ago and many times and in many ways God spoke to the fathers by the prophets. And talking about prophecy and revelation that was given to them by God directly. But then he says, let me make a distinction between those, post, those past revelations and the reality of the best and final revelation. He says, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. He is, in other words, saying the word of the Son is superior to all that was said before and all that would come after. He says, the Son is appointed the heir of all things. And he tells us why, because through whom also He created the world. He created the world through Christ the Son. Verse 3 says, Jesus, who He's speaking of, He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. That's speaking of Jesus. Colossians 1.17 talks about that too. He is the creator and the sustainer of all things. But He's not only the creator... The writer of Hebrews says in 3b, after making purification for sins, this, this creator, this sustainer, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You know what the name is? The name is Lord, Kurios. Verse 3 says that Jesus is the exact imprint. and In the Greek, it's, it's the word character. It was a die engraver's stamp. He's the exact imprint 
He is the exact reproduction of God's nature. That's testifying to His superiority. He is the sovereign, sustainer, and the superior living Savior of sinners. Now, Paul is just simply pushing this into their hearts in Colossians 1.15 to make an indelible mark on them. He's trying to make a, a permanent mark in their minds, in their hearts, so that when the false teachers come along and say, I have a new revelation that Jesus didn't give you, they will, they will automatically say, no, your revelation is not going to supersede the superior Savior's revelation. So let's just think about that for a minute. I'm going to conclude in just a moment, but I want you to think practically through this. What was Paul trying to accomplish in giving this, this word of truth in Colossians 1.15? What did he expect the Colossians to do with this? How did Paul expect the Colossians to respond to this eternal testimony? I think he expected them to respond appropriately. <laughs> I think reverentially. I think joyfully. Paul, Paul taught that Though others come along with revelations to say that you, you need their help, their guidance to make you a better Christian, he goes, I have good news for you. The one who came to save you has given you all that you need because he is your reigning king. He taught that this revelation of who Jesus is would be enough to produce transformation in their life and that this revelation was given to every Christian, not just the super enlightened ones. Uh, turn over to Colossians 1.24. That's his point. He says, look, you, you've been given this, this revelation not because you are the super enlightened ones, but this revelation has came to all Christians so that it will transform your life practically here on earth. He even transformed his because he's rejoicing while he's suffering. I rejoice, he says, in my suffering for your sake. And in my flesh I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery. In other words, he's saying, Colossians, understand, God sent me to give you this full mystery, to reveal everything to all Christians for all time, not just the super enlightened ones, not just the Benny Hens, not just the wackos. All right? That's the ones that have came into the church today. Not just those who say that, that Christ is not enough, but we need to add these things to our life. He says, no, those guys are superseded, and matter of fact, rebuked by this revelation, this thing that was hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to His saints. It's revealed to all of us. We all have access to this revelation through Scripture. But what do we do with it? Having access to it could be irrelevant unless we're living in light of it. So how, how do we as a church respond to this eternal testimony of Jesus' deity? Does it change us practically? How should we respond? I'm going to give you three ways that I think that we should respond. Number one, I think we should respond personally. Number two, we should respond corporately. And number three, we should respond culturally. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul responded personally in Galatians 2.20. In 2.20, the testimony of Jesus' deity transformed Paul 
in his ministry. Look what it says. It transformed him effectually and gave him great confidence to pursue God's purposes in his life. Personally, it says in verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. He understood who Jesus was. He understood what his atoning work has accomplished. And so he says, that's changed my life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by trust, by faith, in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice what he's saying there. I've been crucified with the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior. And it's the Savior who's living His life through me, empowering me. And I live by trust that He is God the Son that loved me personally and died for me personally. See, see, the deity of Christ isn't just a theoretical or a theological statement we make in our confessions of faith. It should be something that changes us personally. It should also change us corporately. Let me show you how the early church responded to the testimony of Jesus' deity in Acts 2, 34. Now notice this. We have a great sermon being, being brought before an unregenerate people, unsaved people. It's a good news message that's being brought to them. But this good news message focuses on the deity of Jesus Christ. Look what it says. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, speaking of Jesus and the Father, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then, then notice what's said in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, this I'm saying to all of us today, if you know this, this should change your heart and your life practically, just like it did them here in their salvation. It says, he says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins or because of the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words, He bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from the crooked generation. And those, so those who received His word, a written revelation now, but then it was a verbal communication from God through the Apostle Peter, they received that word, that testimony of who Jesus Christ is and what He did, Those were baptized and added that day about 3,000 souls. And then notice how that church responded to the revelation of the deity and the testimony of Christ. They devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. See, the gospel hinges on who Jesus Christ is. But it doesn't just stay there in our salvation. It moves into our sanctification and it transforms the church corporately. This is how we should respond. Do you guys stop and think about this? I should stop and think about this. 
When I talk about I'm saved, I'm going to heaven, I need to think about who saved me, what He sacrificed for me, what He's going to do for me, who He is, what He's done. That should overwhelm me. And I should not wonder if I should obey Him or follow Him practically. God who created the universe, God who sustains the present world we live in, came to this earth and became a human lived among us without sin, overcoming sin in the flesh for us. He lived the perfect life that we cannot live on our own. He did everything, humanly speaking, to please the Father from the heart. He was completely obedient to all of God's law from the inside out. And then, in His great love for us, He took our place upon a cross. The Creator was hung upon a cross He created, died as our substitute, living our life perfectly without sin, without guilt, yet died like a criminal being punished for all the wickedness I have ever done. And He did that out of love and to satisfy God's justice because those who sin against their Creator demand His wrath. And that wrath fell on His Son instead of us. And He rose on the third day after dying our death to declare that we have been justified. We've been declared right in God's eyes because our our punishment fell on Him and He paid the penalty in full, setting us free not to live in sin, but to serve Him. We are slaves of righteousness because of the great price that He paid for us. That changes us personally, that changes us corporately, and it changes us evangelistically or culturally. That's the third thing I want to show you. As we look at the testimony of Christ and His deity, It should cause us to respond to Him outwardly, publicly, evangelistically. That's what we see in 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 1. This is how we should respond. This is now the second letter that I I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your, your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior, through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days and with scoffing following their own sinful desires. Now, what Peter's doing is he's saying, look, I need to stir up your memory. Remember who saved you. Remember who you serve. Because you're going out into a culture that is going to oppose you. Then down further in verse 9, he says, remember this, saints, beloved. That's who he's writing to, the beloved. Remember, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Who is this Lord that's coming? Who is this one that's going to expose with a sharp, double-edged sword? It's the Lord of glory. It's Christ, the image of the invisible God. He's coming in the flesh as king to judge the lost, to judge the world. And only those who have been judged in Christ will escape this judgment. And so Peter writes, knowing that the world will perish under the wrath of God the Son... 
in judgment, since all these things are thus to be dissolved. Christians, followers of Christ, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt and burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him, the Lord, without spot or blemish and at peace. How do we respond culturally to the reality of Jesus' deity? We warn the lost. We revere the judge, the creator. We live in light of His holiness as His subjects. We live differently. When we consider His testimony, I think we'll do that. I think we'll do it willingly. I think we'll willingly set aside ourselves to glorify our Savior. I think we'll seek to please Him willfully and joyfully if we contemplate His deity, if we think about who it is that saved us. And I I pray that that's your desire today. But I also know that it may not be your desire. Or maybe it's a struggle. Maybe you're, you're wanting to, to please Him, but it's going to sacrifice something in your life. It's going to cause you to, to have to give something up and have to turn from something and, and turn to Him in obedience. And that may be a struggle, but I want to call upon you to repent because He is worthy of your turning. And if you don't know Him as your Savior, you're going to face Him as your judge. So turn to Him. Because He is gracious and He is sovereign and He can transform a dead person and make them a living declaration of His grace. Just think about who it is that paid your price. Think about who it is that died for our sins. Let me, let me give you a hymn to help you think about that and I'm going to end in prayer. This should help you reaffirm your love for the Lord and pursue His will for your life. When you think about the, the lines of this hymn, it says, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died He for me who caused His pain? For me who Him to death pursued? Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? How can it be? that God would die for me, for you. It's amazing love. And He is worthy of our worship. Let's pray that we will rejoice in that right now. Father God, we thank You for the testimony of Scripture, for the eternal testimony of who Christ is and His superiority over all false teaching and doctrines and ideologies and His sovereign rule and reign and love that fills the heart of every Christian. We thank You for that assurance and that confidence we have in Christ. But Lord, I also know that He is going to be the judge of this earth. So Father, we pray that if any have not turned to You today, they would turn in repentance and faith away from sins and to the Savior who will reign forever. Lord, as those who have been saved by Your grace, 
I pray we will fall upon our knees before the greatness of Christ and testify not only in our language, but in our actions, our life, that He is our Lord and our Master, that we truly adore the One who is the image of the invisible God who came after us, who rescued us. I thank You, God, that You didn't send Your Son to to make salvation possible. You came to save all those that You have chosen from the the foundation of the, the earth. I pray, Lord, we'll respond to that with joyful submission. I pray that it will transform us personally and corporately and culturally, Lord, so that Christ would be glorified not only in our own lives, but in the nation, in the world, wherever we go. May Christ reign supreme. I pray this in His glorious name.